Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Well, we're going to turn to the Scriptures just in just a moment. Um, if you do have your Bibles with you, it's going to be in John 18, and we're going to begin at verse 33. Uh, it's Good Friday, which is always a slightly different service. Um, there is a solemnity uh, to Good Friday, where we remember the crucifixion of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Um, but I just did want to uh, mention something, um, and uh, we're going to refer more to it perhaps on, on Sunday. But I just want to mark in the life of our community something that um, was unexpected um, that happened uh, last Sunday night that was a really key moment for many, many people. Um, at the end of the renewal sessions, which we've done for three weeks, um, we thought we would finish at 7.30, and we ended up, I think, closing the doors after 10. And there was just a moment I just wanted to recognize for many people, which was incredibly special, uh, came unexpectedly, and just a real smile from God and a touch of his presence. Um, so we've heard back from lots of different people, and we know that was a real moment for many people, and I think actually in the life of our church. Um, so in a sense today, and the, the, I guess the way we mark today is not the place to necessarily talk about those stories, but just wanted to put out there that we do want to talk about that on Easter Sunday, which is a celebratory moment. Um, so we know lots of people are touched. If you would like to share or testify to anything that happened during that time, uh, please speak to Britt or Liddy. Britt and Liddy, if you could put your hands up. Um, I think most people know who you are, but just in case... Um, and we'd love to share just really quickly, just in like 30, 40 seconds, uh, just on Easter Sunday. So just that quick comment um, on what was really, I think, quite an amazing uh, night. So let's return to the story. And we've been, I guess, working our way through Holy Week. And uh, many of you would have been reading the scriptures, reflecting, perhaps you're practicing something uh, where you're denying yourself something because of Lent. And as we go through this process, we come to today where we remember Jesus' work on the cross. And I wanted to actually begin by opening a scripture which refers to part of the trial that Jesus is going through. Jesus is passed from different figures of authority. He is brought before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, the particular religious elite who looked over the temple and religious life in Israel at this time. He's then sort of shifted from there. He goes before Herod, the king at that time, and then is brought before Pilate, who is a governor. He is put in charge of the occupying force uh, that is currently occupying the land that Israel from the Roman Empire. And all of these encounters have this sense of a courtroom scene where Jesus is brought before these earthly authorities to give account for the charges that have been brought before him uh, or accused at him. So we're going to pick it up in the middle of the story and uh, we're going to start yeah, in verse 33, John 18. It's also going to be on the stage for you. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me. Now just listen to that language. Already this theme of talking 
people talking words is emerging. Am I a Jew? Pilate asked, replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Take the highlighter. Mark that word truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. Now, at this moment of high drama in Holy Week in the Easter story, how are we to understand this exchange? Well, to understand it, we need to go back and trace a theme that we've been sketching out over the previous weeks around the different offices that Jesus contains and, and brings. He is priest, he is prophet, but also he's king. And that idea of kingship here is brought into clear view. You see, humans, as we've learned over the last few weeks, were given a kind of royal priesthood, a kingship, a queenship, a vice-regency, where what we were created to do was to be in the world and reflect God's glory, but also, in a sense, be recipients of his authority, acting on his behalf. This is our truest identity. But we've also learned that when we read the scriptures, that despite humans being given kingship, because of our sin, because of the fall, we threw this away through disobedience. But what we see in the ministry and life of Jesus is that Jesus comes as a king. He declares his kingdom. And Jesus was fully God and fully human. And as a human, living as a second Adam, he obediently fulfills God's plans that humans have failed in. He is showing us what human kings should act like. Thus, as a king, he must defeat his enemies. In the ancient Near East, in the cultural context that this passage was written in, a king was worth his salt if he could actually triumph over his enemies. That he could actually suppress rival kingdoms. And so, we must understand that this is the background of what is going on in this exchange. You see, God's creation, his plan to fill the world with his presence through his human vice regents, his royal priests, Adam and Eve, is brought about as God speaks the word into, world into being through his words. He creates whole new possibilities, new creation through the speaking of his word. God creates the world with words of truth. But what we see in this exchange, this moment of high drama, is that whilst God creates with words of truth, Satan destroys with evil words. Satan destroys with lies. Now, interestingly, Satan's counterattack against God's plan in the world to build his kingdom through creating these humans which carry God's authority to act as kings and queens in the world is that his attack doesn't come in a frontal direction against that plan. Rather, we see in, in the book of Genesis that it arrives at an angle, horizontally. It comes as a kind of interested friend, a helpful consultant, 
A concerned critic who simply asks a question that is seemingly harmless, but has the potential to destroy worlds. We see in Genesis 3.1, the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? This malevolent word, this misshaping of the truth, enters into the human system of relationships. It's repeated from Eve to Adam, and it's away, spreading like bacteria, not just through that human relationship, but through the generations and through the endless web of human relationships that consist of what we understand as human civilization. And these words work away over time, like termites eating away at the foundation or a building, or rust eroding a great structure. You see, words pick up pace. Words become more intensely powerful as time goes on. They get stuck in our heads. Our unwise words can easily turn into harmful innuendo. They can then escalate into negative criticism. They become undermining, spread by gossip. Cynicism becomes a posture for those who use these words all the time. They can turn into slander, untruth, lies, and eventually into even hatred. And these words move horizontally, and they move in two directions horizontally. They either move to others, or they move to ourselves through negative self-talk. We accuse and condemn others. And we accuse and condemn ourselves. Shame then covers the crime scene. Hatred of others and hatred of self is the end result. And the whole while, this destructive spiral of accusation and lies is accelerated and manipulated by the evil one. That is the role that he plays. And in Revelation 12.10, we see this clearly revealed in The book that's called The Apocalypse, The Unveiling, where we see the spiritual reality behind what we see in the world, where it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, For the accuser, Satan is called the accuser. Who does he accuse? Our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, unrelenting barrage and endless warfare of words directed at others and ourselves whose intention is to destroy. He is the accuser. His weapon is words, untrue words pointed at God's children. You see, he cannot attack God's authority and God's presence because God is so much more powerful. He can't attack them directly. So he attacks those to whom God has created to be vessels of his presence and authority. This is why Jesus says of Satan, In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning. He wanted to tear it all down and kill it from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Satan is a walking lie. When he lies, I mean, this language is incredible. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Satan's language is not Greek or Aramaic, Swahili or Portuguese. His language is literal, pure lies. 
for he is a liar and the father of lies. Did you get that? The devil's literal language is lies. And so therefore, the worldly kingdom that he has constructed is a kingdom of lies. And this means when we use words negatively against ourselves in our inner monologue against others, we actually flip over into his authority rather than God's authority. And instead of living out of the identity that God has created for us to have dominion and create fruitfulness and create in the world, we instead bring chaos and destruction. This is the background of what's going on in this exchange. So Jesus' appearance before Pilate and the religious leaders through earthly eyes looks like a trial. There are trials always happening in human culture. But in the spiritual realm, it's actually a battle between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom of lies. And so we see Jesus moved in this web of lies. The lies have been brewing against his ministry for a long time, the accusation. And at this high point, he has shifted between Herod and Pilate. Herod receives him and Herod acts like an absolute buffoon, treating Jesus like an interesting character he always wanted to meet. If it was today, he'd take a selfie with him and that would be it, just to gain clout. His goal is to try and get Jesus to do tricks, entertaining miracles. That's all he is to, to, to Herod. Herod is so disfigured by lies he reduces God in human form before him to a performer, a mere vending machine of miracles. Herod, disfigured by lies, fails to see the truth that was standing before him. But Pilate is different. Pilate is more serious, more educated, more sophisticated, more worldly. Dare I push the envelope and even say, dare I say, more Melbourne. Pilate tires of and perhaps can see through the lies that Jesus accuses brings. He can see the different factions in the Jewish rivalries. He's trying to constantly manage this. He's a smart man. And he sees that perhaps even some of the accusations that are brought against Jesus, he can see the untruth in them. In Matthew 27, verses 24 to 25, it tells us this. You can see the frustration in Pilate. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, not what you want as a regional governor, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and then says very dramatically, virtual signaling, I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is all your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Now, many people at this point interpret this wrongly. Some interpreters of the scriptures here acquit Pilate of guilt. And this is where many anti-Semitic theories originate. That actually it's the Jews who are simply the only ones with blood and the Gentile Pilate is acquitted here. But that's not a biblical reading because Pilate is guilty. He thinks he sees more than the crowds and the religious leaders in his sophistication. He sits and he places himself in authority over all these different opinions and truth claims. 
However, what Pilate fails to see is that he too is a citizen of the kingdom of lies. With all this now, let's return to where we began. Let's return to that little interaction. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to what? The truth. He is attacking here the kingdom of lies. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. He's gathering the believers, those who are going to choose truth, to his side. But Pilate retorts, what is truth? Now, Pilate's response appears philosophical, clever, that's reasonable, but it's a dodge. Confronted by God in human form, confronted by standing human being of burning truth, Pilate chooses to lie to himself. He can wash his hands, but he's actually touched with guilt. His cool distance is simply a passivity in the face of lies. That's a key ingredient in Satan's plans. And you see, Pilate's posture, I think, aligns with the spirit of our age where truth is abandoned in a sea of mistruth, disinformation, relativism, fake news, and wars to control the narrative, in which inconvenient truths are manipulated by everyone from nation states to the individual. Live your own truth, we are told. But this is an arrogant, arrogant lie. For the truth isn't subservient to the will of the individual. And so reading the story of Jesus' trial before Pilate and the religious leaders, we can see this conspiracy of lies. We can see the importance of truth. Hearing the anger and the, unfrust, the frust, unfairness of the accusations, understanding the spiritual dimensions, knowing Jesus' incredible ability to speak before a crowd, to reply to, to someone in the most incredible way which defeats their arguments. Knowing all of this, his ability to deliver truth, we wonder at this point of the story, what will his response be to Pilate? How will Jesus defend himself against the kingdom of lies? For the Gospels record that Jesus' response to the lies of the religious leaders, to Pilate, to Herod, these accusations, he responds in a particular way. Matthew 27, verse 11 says this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Jesus replied, when he's accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. He gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, oh, you can hear the frustration in Pilate's voice. Do you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. Herod is amazed. Reading this, there's an element you want to scream. You want to grab the Messiah by the collar and shake sense into him and say, say something, Jesus. Release your side of the story. Go to the press. Get on social media. Make a video. Define yourself. Get out early and define the narrative. Say something, man. Yet Jesus meets these accusations and lies with silence. Why? And even in his last moments, as he's led to the cross, the barrage of lies, criticisms, accusations, negative words continue. Mark 15 says this, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so 
You who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mock him among themselves, gossiping behind his back. He saved others, they say, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this so-called king of the Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with Jesus as they die, heap insults on him. Now the truth is going to be revealed. It's not going to be revealed in an incredible courtroom scene worthy of a John Grisham novel. The truth will be revealed in the coming hours, but it's actually going to be revealed by the cross. The kingdom of lies will be answered by the truth of what humanity was doing to Jesus. God will be crucified across on a cross because of lies. But the amazing thing is that Satan's kingdom of lies will be defeated by this moment of truth. Jesus refused to defend himself with words. Instead, he prays to God. In Luke 23, we read, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, when we are accused as humans, we want to strike back, to defend, to accuse, to blame others. Hurt people hurt people. Yet in this moment, Jesus absorbs our lies. He does not need to respond for he understands his authority, his authority to forgive, his authority as the high priest to absolve. And so in this moment, forgiveness is what breaks this cycle. And in doing so, he is coronated in glory to the right hand of the Father upon the cross. Truth wins. Forgiveness opens up a door. And this helps us understand what Jesus says earlier in his ministry. In John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot undo the kingdom of lies in our own strength. We cannot tame the tongue nor the human heart. We cannot reverse the negative words we point at others and ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from our sin. But Jesus can. And that's what we remember today, his work upon the cross. At the moment that broke at the Asbury revival. And I heard this story this week. There was the sermon that was preached. And then there was this moment where it wasn't just the sermon, but after the sermon, a young woman who had, because of the hurt in her life, because of the frustrating words that she'd experienced in her situation, had spread criticism all across that campus. She had gossiped and spoken against people. And actually, after the sermon was preached, And at the moment where she uh, was in response time, she got up and simply asked everyone to forgive her for those words. And that's when God moved. And so that's what we remember. We remember that history's cycle of the kingdom of lies and God's work being attacked 
by Satan's plans, that this is undone by the cross in a moment of forgiveness, where Jesus takes our sins upon him. And in Mark 1, 5, sorry, Mark 1 verse 15, it says this, The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's what we remember today. That's why we are here. We remember that forgiveness opens up new worlds. We remember that we have been created to be children of God with his authority as vice-regents, kings and queens. So let's stand now. I'm going to pray. And let's continue to worship. God, we remember the fact that you sent your son 2,000 years ago to die upon the cross. We remember that the kingdom of lies was defeated with your truth. We remember, Father, that you came and you opened up a new way, that you suffered on the cross so that we would not have to. And Jesus, in this moment, we want to prepare our hearts. We want to remember your work, remember what you did. And so, Father, we worship you. Let's worship.